You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. You can get out your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, we have a relatively short chapter, which those are few and far between in 1 Corinthians, so we are thankful for that. You know, I was reading a little bit about there's this new phenomenon in science called the uncanny valley. And it's kind of new on the scene because it, it really come only with the advancement of technology, especially in our, our technology with robots, with animation and things like that. And the Uncanny Valley, it, it comes from this robotics and animation where they studied our affinity, our like, for things that are lifelike. And so uh, it comes from a chart. You can picture a chart, a graph, you know, and the higher it goes, the more we like something. And so they say you get something that doesn't look human at all, like say R2-D2 from Star Wars. You know, it doesn't look human, but we like it. It's cute. He's fun. And then you get to like a... A Disney character, you know, a little more lifelike, but still we all know it's fake. And those, man, those are super cute. We really like those. And our, our affinity keeps going up and up and up until you get to almost human, but not quite. When you get to something that's almost human, but not quite, our, our like of it goes way down. In fact, we find it really creepy, freaky, weird. It's disconcerting when we see something that's almost human, but there's just one or two things that are just way off. And so most of the times you'll see that is like in horror movies. And so there was a movie that came out long ago called Megan. And this doll that looks super, super, super lifelike, so close, but it's off just enough to really freak you out. <laughs> or there's an old movie, The Stepford Wives, you know, where everything looks normal until something is very much not normal. We experienced this once uh, in our family when Caleb was a little kid. So his favorite stuffed animal was called monkey. And, it was just, and come to, you know, this will be shocked to you, it was a monkey. <laughs> and my stepmother had made it for him when he was itty-bitty baby. And he, so he had it since he was itty-bitty his whole life, all I could remember. Well, we were at my dad's house one holiday, and he comes walking in holding monkey with this look on his face that was confusion mixed with terror. I'd never seen this look on his face before. And he just hands it to me, and he says, somebody did something to monkey. And again, this is the most prized possession. And so I grabbed it, and look, and y'all, his monkey was well-loved and worn, chewed on, beaten up, okay? But what he hands me is this pristine, untouched monkey. It was just a little, but with a couple words missing, a couple things different. Well, come to find out what had happened was my stepmother had been making monkey and had messed up and so had started over with a new one. And so unbeknownst to anyone, including him, he had found monkey 1.0 that she had messed up on and discarded. And he found it. Uh, and it weirded him out and it weirded me out. Uh, but happy ending. Now, then we had two monkeys. And so it was a happy ending. But that moment was weird. It was disconcerting because it was so close to the real thing. But one or two things was off. And it freaked us out. This is a little bit about what's going on in the Corinthian church. So we've talked about this. The church, he's saying in, in Corinthians, is supposed to be the cross on display for the world to see. It's like the original Christian jewelry. Now, 
they're doing some things that don't quite put that cross on display correctly. But we got to remember this book, y'all, it's not a book about you. It's a book about us. It's about what only we can do together as the body of Christ in relationship, mirroring, picturing, showing who Jesus Christ is. And he's talked to some people that are way off. But y'all, this morning, he's going to talk to some people. uh, Honestly, they're very close. They're very close to modeling Jesus, but they're leaving out one essential thing. And so what they end up displaying is an uncanny valley version of the cross. And you know, these are mainly Christians that they have the right knowledge. Their theology is sound. They got the right theology. They're not committing some grievous sin. They're not abandoning the, their faith. In fact, they're strong in their faith, strong enough for them to practice their freedom in Christ. But what they don't have, while they have freedom in Christ, they don't have love. They don't have love. And so that's our big idea today. Liberty without love distorts the cross. Liberty without love distorts the cross. Again, we got a short chapter, so let's just go ahead and read it. We'll read it through and then we'll talk about it. Verse one, he says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines, imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat. We're no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So let's walk through this with our three steps. We followed this for weeks. So first step is we got to find the local problem, and that is what is specific to them. And y'all, there's a lot here in that. And we got to do everything we can to understand what this would have meant for them before we know what it means for us. Step two is we'll look at some theology that he gives. And this is universal for everyone. And y'all, it's always surprising where he goes with it. And then finally, the third step, we'll look at application. We'll look at how he applied it to them, but then we're going to have to adapt it for how it applies to us. So step one, the local problem. So one thing we've talked about, one of the cultural values in Corinth was they had a high value for knowledge but not just like geeky scientific facts. It was this sophisticated knowledge. 
and, and they took pride in it. And if, if I can know more, then I'm closer to God. And I'm, I've got this super secret spiritual knowledge that no one else has but me, for, but for a nominal fee, maybe I'll teach you what I know. And Paul replied to that. He said, well, I'm a simpleton. I mean, when I came to you, I didn't know a lot. In fact, when I came to you, I only, I only knew one thing. One thing. That's all I know. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all I know, and that's all you need to know. In chapter 8, this pursuit of knowledge, and really this pride in their knowledge, it's colliding with one of my personal favorite subjects, meat. <laughs> so we got to understand Corinth, it was, it was a hub of idol worship. There were so many different temples to so many different gods in that city. And every one of them, whether you are worshiping Artemis, Zeus, Apollo, Jupiter, no matter which one, all of them sacrificed meat, sacrificed animals to their God. But they didn't burn up all the meat. When they brought an animal, they didn't burn all of it up. They really usually just burned like the intestines, uh, the fat, and maybe some of the legs. And the leftovers, all of it found its way into the populace. And that's where they got their meat. In fact, that's the only way you could get your meat. All the meat that was eaten in that city came from some sort of idol temple and had been sacrificed to some kind of idol. It happened really one of three ways. So often they would have public festivals at these temples. And so they would invite everyone and they'd serve the meat. It was a big bash and it was great. Everybody had a party. Two, they would sell the meat in the market. And there were no other grocery stores, no other markets. And so if you went to Brookshire's, it was like going to Brookshire's. Oh, and today's special is bone-in ribeye sacrificed to Jupiter. And then everything else had been sacrificed to some god. That's how it worked back then. Or third, if you were invited to a meal at someone's home and they served meat, guess where they got the meat? From the market. So that meat, too, had been sacrificed to idols. So we got to understand there was no other way to get meat uh, in Corinth. But it's understandable. A lot of the believers are uneasy about this. They're saying, wait a minute, I don't know if I feel comfortable eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. But some others, and it appears to be maybe the, the pillars of the church, those who had been there the longest, those who knew the most, were saying, ah, hooey, we know more than you. We're smarter than that. We know those idols aren't real. And they're chowing down at the festivals and not worried about it at all. Now, those people who are eating... Is their theology correct? I would say yes. Is their faith strong? I, I would say yes. But are they displaying the cross? Let's see if we can figure that part out. There's another complication, though, that we need to understand from those who, who they're calling the weaker brothers. Understand, meat was a delicacy. Only the wealthy, rich people could eat meat with any kind of regular, regularity. And in fact, the poorest in the city, the only time they were going to eat meat was at these public festivals. And y'all, they didn't see it as just a, a festival only for people who worship, worship that God. It was like, you know, we're having Christmas on Main Street here. The whole city would come out. And that was their only chance to get any kind of meat. And so we have to understand that these people that are objecting, y'all, they're not offended. They're hungry. And a lot of times these verses are applied to kind of say, whoever gets offended and says, oh, you know, that offends me, so you can't do that. And so... Kind of the person who's the most easily offended has all the power and gets to tell everyone what, everyone what to do. That's not what's going on here. Again, you know, they're not offended, they're hungry. And you know when people are most tempted to return to their idols? 
when they're the most hungry. Every idol exists because it feeds an appetite. Whether it's literal hunger or the hunger for power or relationship or comfort, the whole point of the Id- that idol is for a moment, temporarily, they will meet that need. And that's where these weaker brothers are. That's, that's what he means when he talks about in verse 12, 12, wounding their conscience. They are fighting a battle with their inner moral compass. It's tempting to say, hey, you know what? That Zeus worship, actually, it worked. I can go there and I can have my hunger met. And he's telling some of these stronger believers that, hey, you, by your actions, you're actually ushering them away from Jesus instead of towards Jesus. Or if that's not the case, if it's not just that they're hungry, it's that they're confused. Maybe they're new believers. Maybe they haven't read as many of the scriptures or received as much instructions. And remember, they live in a pluralistic culture. The most normal thing to them would be that I can worship Zeus and Jesus at the same time. Because that's what they've done their whole life. And maybe they just simply don't understand that yet. And so when they see the stronger brother chowing down at the festival, that just... Uh, affirms that wrong assumption that they have. This is what Paul means in verse 9 when he says, you're creating a stumbling block. You're creating confusion. You're creating misunderstanding that's going to make that person fall on their face. So y'all, I hope you see here, the real issue is not about meat. It's about liberty and love. It's about how I practice my faith, keeping the other person in mind. See, your knowledge can tell you that you are free in Christ. But your knowledge can't tell you what to do with that freedom. It takes love. Love is what tells you what to do with the freedom that you have. So that's the issue. That's what's going on here. So let's look at the theology. What what theology will Paul insert here to to lead them in the right direction, y'all? And again, as always, it is surprising. We, we, we've seen some patterns already. So the first thing Paul does is something he always does. He goes Old Testament on them, okay? And over and over again, he goes back to the Old Testament, but back, back to something very foundational in the Old Testament. And here is no different. He goes back to one of the bedrock passages of the Old Testament. He goes back to the verse that every Jew recited twice a day, the Shema from Deut- Deuteronomy. Shema Israel, Adonai, Elohenu, Adonai, Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. We have to understand the Shema is the revolutionary claim, and it was revolutionary back then. The revolutionary claim that God is not just more powerful, is not just better than other gods, but that he is the only God. It's easy to assume that. But y'all, that made Israel completely different. What made Israel completely unique was that they were monotheistic. And when God said, I am one, it formed the foundation of everything else that God taught them in the Old Testament. In fact, even today, even today, even secular historians will tell you that this claim, this claim is the single greatest contribution from the Jewish religion to humanity. It changed the world. This claim that God is one. So why does Paul bring this up? Well, he's, he's essentially saying to the eaters, you know what? You're right. Your knowledge is right on. You get an A+. Plus. You pass the test. Good job. Those idols are fake. You're, you have to worry about honoring or dishonoring them. 
God is not threatened by them any more than he's threatened by the abominable snowman or something. They're not real. And, and everything else that actually does exist, things like meat, he owns it. It was made from him, and it is for him. That food by itself is not bad. God created it, and it can be used by him. Yet, you know, Paul does something amazing here. Look closely. Look closely. Let's look, let's look at verse 6. Who does he include in that one God? Let's read verse 6 again. Yet, for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all are all things and through whom we exist. He puts Jesus in the Shema. He says, our one Lord is both Father and Son. And so, y'all, this is one of the passages where we clearly have the Trinity taught. The singular Shema God exists in perfect relationship with himself. Did you know that? Did you know that God doesn't even need us for relationship? Because all the way back, all the way back to eternity past, he has existed in perfect love and in perfect relationship with himself. So when these knowledgeable Christians, think about this, these knowledgeable Christians, they're chowing down at the temple as they're practicing their freedom. Who are they thinking about when they're doing that? You could say they're thinking about another trinity, me, myself, and I. That's the trinity they were thinking about. Paul tells them, your error is that you've forgotten that even the singular God doesn't just exist for himself. Even the singular God exists in love and relationship. So listen, you've got a lot right, but you're omitting a very important part, and that is creating an uncanny valley view of God. And that's not who God is. So then he does something else. He, he does the second thing he always does. He takes him to the cross. He reminds them of the cross. But he does it a little different way here. In verse 11, he reminds them that Christ died not just for you, but for them also. Christ died also for that weaker brother, he reminds them. And y'all know this. The Bible defines love for us. He, the Bible tells us what love is. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Not just for me. And I have to remember that. It, it was for me, but not just for me. He laid down his life for you too. So if I follow Jesus and Jesus laid down his liberty out of love for you, Shouldn't I do the same thing if I'm following this Jesus? Yes, absolutely I should. So they seem kind of random, the, the Shema and the cross. But, but here, here's the connection. Do you see the relationship? The Shema shows the perfect love of God. The cross shows the sacrificial love of God. And y'all, that means being a Christian is about love, not just knowledge. We can't sit here and think that Christianity is just about knowing things about God and, and living your liberties with God. We can't, listen, listen, listen to what Paul has to say here. Let's, let's back up verse one through three. Look at what he says. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
These are very telling words. He's painting a contrast here. So that, that word build up, it literally means construction, like to build a house. So he's saying love, solid construction. That word puffs up, it means to blow air into something. And, and, it, and it has this connotation, the sense of making something look bigger than it is. And so you may, you know, you think about an animal like a puffer fish. When it's threatened, it'll puff itself up to make it look bigger than it is. Or we may say something like, you know, somebody's just blowing hot air. They're using a lot of words. They're saying a lot of words, but they don't really mean anything. There's, there's no substance there. So do you see the contrast he's painting? He says, knowledge can look like something, but it's really nothing. Love, love is solid construction. Love actually builds something that is real and will last. And then in verse 3, Paul, Paul shows the most important thing that they're missing about knowledge. And he's really dealing a death blow to their pride in their knowledge. He says, you know what? There's something way more important than what you know. And it's who knows you. Who knows you is way more important than what you know. Because think about it. Even our best knowledge of God, whoever's here knows the most about God, even that is drastically incomplete. Paul will say this later. He'll say, right now, until Jesus returns, he puts it that we're seeing through a glass darkly, like through kind of a foggy mirror. We have a hazy picture. That's the best we can do right now. But hey, when Jesus returns, then we'll know in full. Then we'll see in full. But until that day, we just have a little bit. But you know how much of God's knowledge of you will change when Jesus comes back? Absolutely none at all. He already knows you in full, completely. He knit you together before you were born. Have you ever thought about this? While Jesus was dying for you on the cross, even before that, when he decided to die for you on the cross, there were no surprises, none at all. He knew exactly what he was getting in you and in me. And y'all, when Paul says here, when he says God knows us, again, he's not just talking about from a distance. He doesn't just know our Wikipedia page or something like that. He means he loves us. In fact, it's the same word you'll find in Luke chapter 10. It says, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. He's talking about all eternity past, Trinity, knowledge, and love. That's why this is amazing, y'all. The Shema Trinity God has welcomed you into a relationship, and he loves you like he loves Jesus. And this is why. This is why liberty without love distorts the cross. Because listen, just showing my liberty, at best, it displays how much I know. But when we display love, we show who knows us. And so Paul, he, he puts this all together and then he, he gives them really two applications. One of them, y'all, I'll, I'll just say it's difficult. It's hard. There's a lot of different ways you can plot, apply it. But one of them, the other one, is actually very, very, very simple. So let's do the complicated one first. He, he says in verse 8, he assures them, food will not commend us to God. So you're not worse off if you eat. You're not better off if you don't eat. Either way, it's totally fine. You do have liberty. 
So then, then it's a matter of faith and understanding of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You have to ask, is it leading them to worship idols? Is it creating confusion that's going to make them stumble? And so, you know, we don't have the same struggle with meat. We, we don't go to Brookshire's and see food sacrificed to idols. But I think we do struggle a lot when it comes to issues of our presence, of our attendance in non-Christian environments. And so to, to adapt this to us, and y'all, let me say, most of this from here on out, this is my opinion. This is Clint talking. This is not thus saith the Lord. And so somebody else may give you different advice. But just as I take this and I look at the world around me, here's some ways I think we could apply it. So the closest scenario I could come up with would be, let's say your Muslim neighbor invites you over for dinner. And so you can assume that food either will be or has been uh, a prayer has been offered for it to Allah, to a different God. So you may say, okay, am I defiling myself or am I, am I dishonoring God by being present? You know, I, I think Paul would say as long as we're not tempted to become Muslim, we're fine. Those idols aren't real and food is neutral. It's okay. So next I need to think about them, not just me. I need to think about the other person. And so I think as long as the person hasn't been coming to church, hasn't been expressing some desire to follow Christ, as long as they aren't confused about the differences between Christians and Muslims, which in our day, it's hard to think that they would be confused by that. Then I think Paul would say, you know, I'm free to sit in their home and share their table. You know, it's, it's, a, it's really, it's surprising to me here. It's, Paul is not concerned at all about how it looks to total unbelievers. Did you notice that? He's not at all concerned about how it looks to people who are far from Christ, who have no interest in Christ. He's like, hey, go to the temple, go to the festival, have at it. The caution is particularly towards brothers and sisters in the faith, and particularly ones who are having a hard time leaving some, that part of their past behind. And so I think that's instructive for us. You know, I'd, I'd give similar advice when it comes to attending certain weddings or being around certain lifestyles. The question is, will it cause confusion about beliefs or will it hurt someone's walk with Christ? So for example, I have no problem going into a bar. I don't, I think Paul says that you don't have to worry about that. It's fine. But let's say I had a Christian brother who is trying to leave that lifestyle, either a lifestyle of bar hopping and partying or a lifestyle of alcoholism. And he's expressed this to me and it's a struggle with it. And then one day he calls me up and says, let's go to the bar. I'm going to say, hey, let's find, maybe let's do something else. Let's find something else to do, right? Because that's a struggle for him. I would say, you know, if a gay or lesbian neighbor, neighbor invites me over to dinner, I'll be there with bells on. But let's say there was someone who was struggling with their faith, who wanted to follow Christ, who wanted to leave that lifestyle behind. And then they called me and said, hey, there's a pride parade in town. Come to the pride parade with me. You know what? I'd probably say, let's find something else to do. I'd still do something with them, but maybe that's not the best for them. Y'all, what makes this tricky, though, and we have, it's so important that we acknowledge this, what makes this tricky is there are as many different scenarios as there are idols in our culture, which is to say infinite. But what we can't do is just apply this to everyone else's idols. Because we've got plenty of perfectly accepted in our culture idols, don't we? Better believe we do. 
There's materialism, there's sports, there's entertainment, there's politics, there's an endless list. And so, for example, let's say, I love sports. I went hunting this weekend. It was great. Let's say I've got a brother who has made an idol of going to play golf all the time, going hunting all the time, something like that, and it's harming their marriage, and it's, they haven't been to church in a long time because they're always doing and they've identified, and they've said, you know what, that was taking an improper place in my life. It's hurting my relationship with Jesus. It's hurting my relationship with my family, and so I need to create some distance from that. But then opening day comes, and they call me on the phone, like, hey, man, let's go. I'm at least going to ask some questions, Right? And I'm probably not going to go at that time. I'm probably going to say, hey, let's, do, let's find something different to do. Let's help you walk through this in the right way. Let's, let's usher you towards Jesus and make, sh- make sure we're not ushering you away from Jesus. If I have a brother who struggles with materialism, they find their meaning in their stuff, and they've never been able to be generous or to be giving because they're always so busy consuming, and they've identified it, they said, man, I find all my meaning in this, and it's not good. And that, Jesus calls me to something different. And then they call me up and say, let's go shopping all weekend. I'm probably going to say, let's do something different. But you know what? Also, I'm probably going to refrain from uh, when I buy my new designer jeans, uh, sending them pictures of it. Yeah. It's Levi's designer. Does that count as designer jeans? Uh, they probably won't be impressed by that. But you know, I'm not, I'm not going to throw that in their face. I'm going to be careful with it because I know them and I love them and I want to usher them to Jesus, not back to their idols. And you know, we, we aren't in a polytheistic culture like they were, but we are in a synchristic culture. Synchristic just means we, we very much blend our faith in Jesus with lots of other things. They're just not named Zeus and Apollos, right? But we still mix them together. I came across this amazing study that Legionnaire Ministries did along with Lifeway. And Legionnaire Ministries was started by R.C. Sproul. And they called it the state of theology. And so what they wanted to do is they wanted to find out when someone calls themselves an evangelical Christian, what do they mean? What makes them an evangelical Christian? And y'all, the findings were fascinating. They were heartbreaking. So we found out that today... Being an evangelical Christian actually has little to do with sound theology. 43% of people who identify themselves as evangelical Christians, 43% believe that Jesus is a great teacher, but not God. 65% don't believe in original sin. 56% believe that God accepts worship of all religions. And 26%, one in four, agree that the Bible is not literally true. We also found it has nothing to do with religious practice. Less than half go to church weekly. 27% of evangelical Christians go to church once a year or less. So let's summarize. We've got a lot of people, millions of people identifying themselves as evangelical Christians that don't believe that Jesus is God, that man is sinful, that the Bible is true, and that Jesus is the only way to God. And they are doing almost nothing to actually practice their faith. So 
my next, my immediate question, and probably yours is, on what basis are you calling yourself an evangelical Christian? Almost universally, it's one, how they vote. Either by an issue, I I vote specifically on an issue, or a party, I vote for a party, or a person, a specific person. By doing that, I'm an evangelical Christian. Y'all, that's the waters we're swimming in. And the numbers say it's not even close. I mean, this is our culture. So say, okay, we, we take Paul's teaching here. It can be so helpful, and we have to apply it to the, the syncretism that's going on. So a couple ways I want to be very, very crystal clear right now. And the church, oh, we all have to be very, very clear. There's one thing that makes you a Christian. That is a personal faith in and relationship to Jesus Christ. That's it. And y'all, everything else, no matter how important, is secondary to that. And if you are here and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we invite you into that. That's what we're inviting you into. And we can disagree about everything else just about. I want to be very clear about something else too. Listen, participating in public and civic life is good and important. And we should do it. And Jesus calls us to it. And God says, you know what, the government, it is ordained by him. It is given by him to us for our good, just like meat is for our sustenance. And so, man, that is good and it is important, and we need to participate in that. I can think of no better example than Veterans Day, right? I mean, what a great example to show that, man, some of the ways, some of the best ways we can put the cross on display we can lay down our liberties out of love for others, happen in civic and public life. But we also have to acknowledge we clearly live in a culture where many see their earthly citizenship not as an overflow of their heavenly citizenship, which it should be, but as a substitute for their heavenly citizenship. And so in this culture, here's some, again, this is Clint talking again, okay? Here's some takeaways, I think, I would apply what Paul is teaching here. So if I have a friend who I'm in a relationship with who says, you know what, I'm just being convicted. I've been putting my hope in man more than in God. Or I've been putting all of my passion into some cause and none of my passion into worshiping Jesus. And you know what, I need to, I need to course correct on that. I need to give my full loyalty to, to Jesus Christ. Then with him, you know what, there's probably some conversations I wouldn't participate in with them. And I would be careful with, with them. And living in a culture where I know there's a lot of confusion about this stuff. Again, Paul tells us, you gotta, I want you to guard against misunderstanding and confusion. So I'm going to be very careful not to post on social media or say things publicly where there's no conversation and there's no relationship. And something I say as personal opinion could be taken as, thus saith the Lord, the words of God. But what we can't do What we can't do is say, well, since no one here worships Zeus, Paul isn't teaching us anything. No, we must think just as carefully as they did about the times we need to lay down our liberties out of love for others. And I will freely admit, y'all, every example I just gave, which was many, in every single one of those examples, if you change just one or two variables, I'd probably give the opposite advice, right? Right? And those variables have to do with the faith and understanding of someone else 
which is very hard to know. I've, I've thought I knew someone's faith and understanding. I've been totally wrong. I've been, in my own home, I've been wrong, right? That's hard to do. And so, another person's hard to gauge. A lot of this is confusing. A lot of this changes. Here's really three pieces of advice I would give you no matter the situation. Number one, do it with counsel. Do it with counsel. We, there's not a lot we can commend in the Corinthians in this book. Here's one of them. Let's give them a win, okay? They're seeking counsel with Paul. He's writing about this because they've asked him about it repeatedly, and they're struggling how to handle that. So we can take a note from that. Do it with counsel. Talk to trusted believers. Number two, do it with prayer. Number three, do it with relationship. Y'all, they're not struggling about some hypothetical or some straw man. What if I'm in the temple one day? They knew the names and the faces. They had conversations. And so we can't just act in generalities or just based what's on the news or what's on social media. You have to know people to know how to love them best. So do it in relationship. Okay. I told you that first part was complicated. Okay. That part was complicated. Here comes the very simple part. Verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Man, it is hard to think of a more cross-on-display statement than that one. I will willingly and forever lay down my liberties out of love for my brother. And y'all, he's unequivocal. I mean, he doesn't really leave any wiggle room. And if he likes steak half as much as I do, that's a big deal. You know, I think Paul's trying to sum it up for us. You will never go wrong by doing the most loving thing. You just won't go wrong. You'll never go wrong by doing the most loving thing. Any scenario we can dream up here, if you just ask, what is the most loving thing I can do for the other person no matter what it costs me? I'll do that thing. And y'all, that is weird in our world. That will be weird if we live like that. Because almost the whole world is going to say, you know what? I have a right to do whatever I want. And as long as I want to do it, I should. As long as I'm not hurting somebody else. And if somebody else has a problem with it, that's their problem. That's not my problem. But that's not how we operate in the church. Here we do something very different with our liberties. We willingly lay them down out of love for others. And we do that because that's what Jesus did on the cross. And we want to be like him. And so think about it this way, church. Think about it this way. What you do with your liberties tells people what God did with his. What you do with your liberties tells people, it shows them, it puts on display what God did with his. And so when we exercise liberty without love, we distort the cross. But every time, every time, church, we set aside liberty out of love, we display the cross. And it's going to be hard. Y'all always, always laying down our liberties is hard, especially in, like in this situation, when we're right and they're wrong, when we're stronger and they're weaker, when we have understanding and they misunderstand. But when it gets hard, I'm going to ask you, when it gets hard, just remember this. Your hope isn't in what you know. Your hope is in who knows you. The God of the Shema knows you and loves you and laid down his life for you. And so you are free. You're free to ask in every situation, 
What is the most loving thing I can do for my brothers and sisters in Christ? And then go do that thing. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.